turn to Galatians 6. We're going to look at a passage that encourages us not to grow weary, not to give up, and how foolish it is when we don't relate to everything as a stewardship trust. Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Hear the word of God. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen. Father God, I pray that you would anoint me and enable me to preach your word faithfully and help us to be both hearers, understanders, and doers of that word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You might be seated. Last week we started looking at a subject that you don't hear preached on very frequently, and it's the Christian and prosperity. And we started this series with 3 John, verses 1 through 8, which says in part, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, Gaius was, uh, had a prospering soul, and John was delighted in the fact that his, he was spiritually prospering. But he said, because you're a steward, I want your stewardship to increase. I want you to prosper in your marriage relation, in your social relations, in your finances, in absolutely everything that you do. Now, we saw that that does not happen automatically. There are things that need to be in place. And we looked at seven characteristics of the prosperity that John was talking about there. We're not going to repeat those. We'll never get through the series if we repeat what we've done in the past. But uh, if you were not here, uh, you could probably get a copy of the sermon from Matt or Keith Kelsey. One of the two of them will maybe uh, make uh, copies for you. Hopefully, eventually, we'll get a tape duplicator. We're gonna, we can just do it in the back of the auditorium. But that's not uh, happening yet. And today, we're going to look at a part of the truth that needed to be walked in that John was talking about. Now, this whole series is really about that. But we're going to look at eight foundational principles of harvest that relate to the Christian's prosperity. We're only going to get through principle number one today, law number one. And uh, uh, I want to at least highlight, Lee, if you could put the outline up there that uh, gives the eight principles um, and uh, just quickly go through those. And you don't need to write these down because we're going to be going through these next two or three weeks. Uh, you can write down from the next overhead, but we reap only when there has been sowing. Secondly, we reap the same kind as we sow. Thirdly, we reap a multiplied increase of what we sow. Fourth, we reap in proportion to our diligence. Fifth, we reap in a different season than we sow. Sixth, we reap the full harvest of the good only if we persevere, the evil or weeds, <laughs> whatever. The negative always seems to come on its own. Seventh, we cannot do anything about last year's harvest, but we sure can about this year's. And then the eighth, 
we reap from the sowing of others. Okay, God blesses us with the, the wealth of the wicked, you know, the, the righteous inherit that. The parents lay up for their children. There's miracles the Lord does in our lives. We'll be looking at that eighth uh, principle. Uh, but uh, today we're only going to look at principle number one uh, because I want to give a little bit of background and context so that we do not misapply this principle. And then we'll look at ten characteristics of sowing, and we're primarily going to be applying it to uh, the area of economics. I read a lot on this um, passage, and other than Gary North and um, uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, maybe a few others, there aren't very many people who put verses 7 through 9, the eight principles there, into its economic context. Okay, uh, Verse 6 and verse 10 deals with economics. Now, these have very broad applications. I apply these principles in my counseling situations and a lot of different areas, but we cannot miss the primary application that the Apostle Paul uh, dealt with. In uh, verse 6, Paul is talking about division of labor and wages. Those are economic principles that Paul is applying in the life of the church. We're going to be seeing in uh, law number 2 that you reap the same kind of seed that you sow. If you're dealing in the economic realm, you're going to have from the economic realm something that you are reaping. But the, the bottom line there is it's clear, very clear, uh, verse 6 is dealing with economics. Verse 10, Paul is talking about sowing tangible blessings into the lives of believers as well as unbelievers. Look at how it's worded. Therefore, in other words, this is not a new paragraph. He's concluding an old paragraph. Some Bibles separate this out. But he says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, it might be thought that being a good Samaritan and helping a person out by the side of the road uh, might be a waste of money and time and, and efforts. But Paul guarantees as we pour into that area of the kingdom, he will, in those same areas, pour back into our lives even more than what we have given. In fact, he devotes two whole chapters in 2 Corinthians to exactly that, when we're giving above and beyond the tithe, the kind of blessings, tangible blessings, that he pours into our lives. Let me just give you uh, three sample verses from there. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 7. But I say this, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, he talks about stewardship there, but listen to verse 10. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. And so there's eight laws of harvest that Galatians 6 uh, says really applies to absolutely everything that we do, but we cannot miss the fact that it applies to economics as well. I get the impression from some people if it's not invisible, it's not spiritual. <laughs> I think Paul's point in verse 8 is we've got to make sure everything is spiritual. Absolutely everything that we do. In fact, uh, Christ in another passage says basically we need to Christianize everything that we do, uh, even the wealth of the uh, ungodly. Let me give you an example. Luke 16, verse 11 says, 
If you have not been faithful in the wealth of the unrighteous, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Now, we tend to invert that. We tend to think, yeah, we could be faithful in, you know, in, in spiritual uh, things and church-type things and maybe not be faithful with the wealth of the unrighteous, and uh, we're still okay. And Christ says, no. Your Christianity is being tested precisely in the economic realm. I think it's one of the greatest testing grounds for Christianity in the economic realm where unbelievers are. He says, with the wealth of the unrighteous. A point of Mark chapter 10 is that we must learn how to be stewards of the kingdom with our houses and with our money and uh, with our lands. And I think it's a whole lot harder to be a Christian in the realm of the uh, economics out with unbelievers than it is in the sheltered realm of the church. Actually, the church has economics too, but I think you get my point. I think Christians many times break every rule in the book, every economic rule in the book out there when they're, when they're dealing in the world, and yet they feel that their Christianity is okay. And it simply is not. So it does deal with economics, but if you look at verse 7, you'll see it's a lot broader than just economics. It says, whatever a man sows. Whatever a man sows. So this applies to soybeans, corn, and uh, wheat just as much as it applies to marriage principles. Gary North says it applies uh, just as much to politics as it does to church-related uh, issues. He says, whatever a man sows. Here's what Ritterboss says in his commentary on that word, whatever. It holds for everybody and everything he does. So it's comprehensive. These laws cover everything in life. And not only are they comprehensive, they are invariable. That's why they're called laws. God backs up. He is a God who cannot be mocked. He backs up these laws, and uh, they will always find fulfillment in your life. And that's true when you're reaping to the... Uh, from the seed you've sown to the flesh, forgiveness does not wipe out a single one of these laws. So many Christians, I think, misunderstand this. Take David, for example, and his sin with Bathsheba. Um, Nathan, the prophet, came to him and said, okay, your sins are forgiven. But, and he goes on to talk about some of the harvest he was going to reap in his life. Now, God in his mercy sometimes keeps us from <laughs> reaping a 100-fold increase. Sometimes it may be 20 or 10, but there is always going to be a multiplied increase of whatever we sow, whether we sow to the flesh or whether we sow uh, to the Spirit. And uh, we just need to see these as being written in stone. They, are, they can be banked on just like you can bank on gravity. These always happen. There are no exceptions in anybody's life. And when you begin to realize how comprehensive these eight laws are, then verse 8 becomes very convicting, and verse 8 begins to bring a great deal of comfort into our lives and encouragement as well. It shows that there are two realms. Uh, he's likening the spirit and the flesh to two plots of ground, two fields, okay? There's two realms in which we can be sowing, and we need to be doing everything that we do in the realm of the spirit, otherwise we're not going to get our re return. We either sow to the flesh or we sow to the spirit. Look at verse 8. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now, he is not denying that our own fleshly strength can produce a harvest. Our flesh can produce all kinds of things. In, in, in economics, it can even produce ministry according to the Scripture. We can do a lot of things with our flesh, but it's not something that's going to be lasting. And uh, what 
he is uh, talking about here is a contrast in a believer's life. Some people have thought that he's contrasting believers with unbelievers. I don't think that's the case at all. Uh, now, these principles apply to unbelievers, but he's talking just like in chapter 5 when he talked about sowing to the Spirit. He's talking to believers. He was saying in chapter 5, you believers, you can walk in the Spirit or you can walk in the flesh, and then he defines exactly what that's going to look like. And if you look at chapter 5, you'll see the things that we do in the flesh, it, it does, unfortunately, describe much of what Christians do. Well, in the same way, in chapter 6 and verse 8, Paul is talking to believers, and he's telling them that the offerings that they give, verse 6, and the mercy ministries they engage in, verse 10, can be engaged in by the power of the flesh. Okay? Uh, uh, there can be results, but they're going to be temporal results. He's not contrasting heaven and hell. He's contrasting something that, yes, will produce a harvest, but eventually it's going to rot, it's going to die, it's going to corrupt with something that is not only going to last for time, but it's going to last for our eternal lives. He's trying to get these people to have an eternal perspective on absolutely everything that they do. See, according to Paul and Christ, you are not an economic success unless you're also laying up treasures in heaven. And uh, we need to be thinking, how do we use our house? Uh, it needs to revolutionize uh, how we think about changing diapers. Uh, everything we do, is it counting for eternity? Well, a lot of that reflects our attitudes. Are we serving Christ with this, or are we serving someone else with this? So there's two fields. And the field, you know, warms up the seed and gives moisture and it gives nourishment to that grain to grow up. And the question is, are you being nourished and strengthened by your own fleshly power or is it by the Spirit? He says this has to cover everything we do. And that's revolutionary because once you begin to grasp that, it means that a menial slave who's doing what maybe somebody else thinks is not anything of significance can be not only reaping a harvest in this life, but in eternity. And, of course, that's exactly what Colossians 3 says can happen to people who are, uh, who are, who are serving others. Um, he says, don't be discouraged. You follow these laws, the results of prosperity will follow. And so that's the context. What I want to do now, you can go to the other overhead, is uh, I want to look at the first, and it's the most basic, law of harvest, that we reap only when there has been sowing. It says, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now, farmers don't get a crop if they don't plant a crop. And that may be so obvious, it may seem insulting for me to even mention that, but I think we Christians need to be insulted because we violate this principle all the time. In my counseling with people, they're always wanting a harvest of righteousness in their lives. They're not willing to invest the time and the efforts into sowing that righteousness uh, into their lives. Uh, John Lawrence, in uh, one of his books, was so aghast at the laziness of Christians and their growth in, in holiness that he said this, if the farmer knew no more about the principles of farming than the average Christian does about producing a spiritual harvest, he would never make it through the winter. Now, he applies it in a pretty limited sphere, what he thinks of as spiritual areas. And uh, what I want to do is I want to apply this in the area of economics and virtually everything that we do. And let me just give you some examples from our common life before we get to uh, economics. Evangelism. We can pray that people will be saved, but if we're not actually interacting in the lives of unbelievers and uh, sharing the word with them, it's not going to happen because 
We are asking for an increase of what has never been sowed. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall the preacher go, you know, if he's not being uh, sent? He didn't tell us to wait for people to come into the church. He commanded us to go out into the highways and the byways, compel them to come in and to share with them the blessings of the richness of God's grace in their lives. Another example. Um, let's say that we were desperately in need of a building, which um, uh, we're looking for a building, but we're not desperately in need of one. But it wouldn't do any good if I um, just prayed in my study and expected the Lord to put it on the heart of some person out there and say, for God to tell this person, okay, there's a guy by the name of Phil Kaiser and there's a church by the name of Dominion Covenant Church. They need a building. I want you to write a check to them. And here's the address that you need to send it to. And then expect that the Lord's going to bring it that way. See, if I'm not out there making contacts, if I'm not treading on the land and claiming something for the Lord, if I'm not being involved in some way, there's not going to be anything for the Lord to prosper. Uh, you know, when uh, Joshua went into the land to conquer the land, uh, the only thing that God promised to him that he would receive is what he put his feet on. <laughs> if they weren't willing to put their feet on it, they were not going to have it. He said, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. And Christians, many times, they space this. They just said, okay, Lord, great, give me Canaan. I'm waiting for a miracle. And God says, get out there, do your work, okay? It's very basic principles, and yet we as Christians many times fail on these. Let me give another example. There are Christians who are struggling against a besetting sin, and they struggle uh, with praying to God to take away the temptation, but they're not willing to put in the hard work of, you know, plowing the field and sowing and watering and weeding and cultivating. I mean, it's hard work to grow in holiness. There's a battle that goes on there. Instead, what they do is they say, Lord, zap me, in effect. They say, Lord, take away this. Take away this feeling that I've got. I don't want to go into sin. And since the Lord doesn't take it away, they go ahead and they, they sin. They don't go to the extremes of planting, of farming in their lives. And God, in effect, looks at them and says, what kind of a farmer are you? I told you I would bless your increase. I would increase. But you've got to plant and you've got to water. Now, we can go to the other extreme. It's not just our activity that can be failing. We can be very active, and we can be working our tail off, and yet not be sowing or planting anything to the Holy Spirit. We can be doing it all in our own fleshly power. A failure to pray is uh, one of the symptoms of this, uh, because prayerlessness really is an indication that we trust our own flesh, our own field, to have everything that's needed to produce the crop that we're asking for. And God says, when we are prayerless, in the things that we do, we are giving evidence that we are not truly sowing to the Spirit. Automatically, if we are prayerless, we are sowing to the flesh. And any prosperity we may gain, uh, we're, 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 we're doing it in our own strength. You know, it's like a farmer who wants uh, a field of corn, and he fills his uh, drill with, uh, you know, ragweed. It doesn't matter how much he works his tail off, he's still not going to get a cash crop out of it. And uh, we need to think through our dependence upon the Lord. J.C. Ryle said, Bibles read without prayer, sermons heard without prayer, marriages contracted without prayer, journeys undertaken without prayer, residences chosen without prayer, friendships formed without prayer, the daily act of private prayer itself hurried over or gone through without heart 
These are the kind of downward steps by which many a Christian descends to a condition of spiritual palsy or reaches the point where God allows him to have a tremendous fall. You may be very sure men fall in private long before they fall in public. They are backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. Now, I think enough background, but I think you need to see the context into which we're going to be putting these principles. Why don't we go ahead and put up point uh, number B. If you want to be involved in a spiritual harvest, just think of what farmers do in Iowa and Nebraska. It transfers straight over. The first essential to sowing seed effectively. Let me tell you something. In the olden days, before they had farmer's insurance, before they had the farmer's welfare, this principle meant the difference between starvation and surviving, or at least between surviving as a farmer and becoming a servant for somebody else. Here's the principle. You don't eat all your crop. Okay? You scrimp, you save, in order to have something to plant for the next year. Now, occasionally, there are farmers who uh, uh, violate this when... The communists took over in Ethiopia uh, after I'd left. My parents were still there. There was government-induced famines because of their policies that kept people from saving. It was so interesting. Americans would send over all kinds of seed corn for these Ethiopians to plant. And in some of the areas, they were. They were diligent. They would plant. But some of these areas, the people would feast and feast. And they were told, don't eat it. This is seed. No, they didn't care. We've got plenty now. And they ate all of their, their crop. And uh, what's true in not eating our seed corn, by analogy, we need to apply to economics. Now, um, uh, we've got to be disciplined in our savings, or we're never going to have anything to invest. Here's the principle. Pay God first, tithes and offerings. Pay your savings account second, and eat third. Okay, And we need to do that religiously. Do it as a spiritual act of service to the Lord. Uh, we've got to save money for investment. And you might think, well, that's a whole lot easier said than done. And I understand. I realize that. In fact, I've, I've failed on this principle myself. Uh, and uh, I think it's something that doesn't always come naturally. We have a tendency to uh, uh, think only about the squeaky wheel. And uh, during bad years... In the Old Testament, there were times where people did not have much. It was a famine, but they didn't even eat three meals a day so that they would have something to plant the next year or it would all be over. They always felt they had to save. <clears throat> That's what Scripture means when it says, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Now, the tears are talking about the sacrifice, the pain of being able to save. Next verse says, He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So if you ate everything that you planted the next year, you would not be a farmer. It was just as simple as that. You'd be a servant of somebody else. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a servant, but this series is, is talking about how are we going to prosper. And we're not going to prosper if we're not willing to invest in the lives of others. Now, sometimes it's simply not possible. We are poverty-stricken. There won't be anything to, to save. But we're also going to have to say no to the question, am I going to be prospered by the Lord if I don't plant? And I, I think we have to say no. Scripture says if you don't plant, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to prosper. In fact, some people who have not made this as a habit of their lives 
I have seen several in my lifetime, I have seen several of these people who spend everything that they, that they get receive large settlements that could have set them up for life and it's a matter of a year or two and they are just as hand to mouth as they are presently because they spend everything that they have. If we don't set this as a principle, at least saving aside something, uh, we're never going to get into the habit. We're always going to be spending as the increase comes along. So this has just got to be religiously followed. You've got to save. The second characteristic of good sowing is watch the timing of your investments. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 2 says, there is a time to plant and there is a time to pluck what is planted. Now I came to realize how important the issue of uh, timing was when I went up to Smithland every Sunday. Their prayer requests were a whole lot different than city folks' prayer requests, but they were very sensitive to timing. You know, if they put the seed into the ground when it was too wet or too cold, if they waited too long, it could cost the farmer big time. And I think a lot of uh, Christians who have failed in their investments have failed precisely because of this issue of timing. In fact, uh, just this past Thursday, I was sharing uh, with a pastor some of these uh, principles I was going to be preaching on, and he said, you know what? That's exactly where I failed on two of the points that you were preaching on. He said, uh, I had a friend that was just making a killing on these stocks. And I thought, wow, I want to get in on the cycle. So he gets in right when it's up at the peak and watches it ride all the way down. In fact, um, uh, it went down so far. He went from a $10,000 um, investment. I think it went from 40 bucks down to 13-something bucks. That's 10000 going down to 3250 That hurts. <laughs> You know, when somebody's investing like that. But he said, if I'd just taken the time to evaluate the issue of where the company was at, that's a later point, and the timing, I, I could have avoided that. And uh, th this is just a frequent problem that, uh, that people uh, do not think through. Uh, a timing is big. Now, other people won't touch a stock with a 10-foot pole because they've seen it beaten up in the stock market. It's gone down, 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 way below its uh, actual value. And yet, if you've studied the company and it's a fairly stable company, that might be precisely the time to buy. The timing issue applies in economics. It applies in evangelism. You know, Scripture talks about a, a word in due season, you know, a word fitly spoken in due season. Uh, is blessed by the Lord, but we've got to, to, to think about timing in uh, uh, other areas as well. Even the things like, you know, our children's education. There are certain times when you teach certain things, and uh, it, it's an important principle. Third characteristic of good sowing, and it's mentioned over and over again in the Scripture, is the issue of planning. Uh, the farmer was called to plan his sowing, but not to overplan. For example, Isaiah 28 says, Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? And the answer is obviously no. When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow? Now, God makes a different application there, but the principle, I mean to a different issue, but the principle in economics, I think, is exactly the same. Either we go to one extreme or the other many times, either we don't plan, we go on a whim, you know, a, a hot tip from somebody else, and we've not done any of the planning ourselves and we get burned, or else we are so nervous about the investment 
that we plan and we plan and we plan until finally it's too late to really get any decent return on the investment that we could have if uh, uh, we had not tried to avoid all risk. R avoiding risk is impossible. Okay, You try to minimize risk, but risk is a part of life. And those who are not uh, willing to take risks are, are just going to have the status quo. Now, perhaps this is not a totally separate point, but point four is know your fields. Isaiah 28 speaks of God's wisdom being given to the farmer to know which field each type of grain needs to be sown in. And it says, does he not plant the wheat in rows, the barley in its appointed place, and the spelt in its place? For God instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. Okay, a farmer has to evaluate which grain is going to work good in the low spots where it's moist and which ones need dry soil and maybe sandy soil. And uh, in the same way, we have got to know our fields. Now, we're not applying it so much to other areas, but in evangelism. What, Christ used all kinds of different techniques in evangelism. He understood the people that he was talking to and he treated them differently. Uh, we've got to understand our children uh, in, in our raising of our children, not treat them all the same way. They're not the same. Uh, they have different personalities. They have different uh, uh, dispositions towards sin and things like that. And so we've got to understand the soil as we're seeking to bring them up. Well, the same is true in the area of uh, economics. And that, this is the other point that this pastor said he had majorly failed on. You know, Aunt Matilda's uh, recommendation of what had made her a killing did not make him a killing because he didn't take the time to investigate where this company was at at this particular time. And I think he could have avoided uh, disaster. So don't expect miracles. You know, you're planting in some stock and it's starting to go down. You say, oh, Lord, you know, bail me out, do a miracle or something like that. God says, well, this is just a law of harvest. If you don't plan, you're not going to succeed in the investments that you bring other than by fluke. Now, can any of us make mistakes on these areas? Well, of course, we're very fallible, but the issue is not whether we make mistakes, but whether we've tried to avoid them, okay? We've got to try to do the planning. Let's just use a, a simple illustration like a child trying to set up a Kool-Aid stand. Um, just because 50 years before, your dad made a killing, you know, and, and his Kool-Aid stand does not mean it's going to work for us because the situations may be totally different. Um, Maybe back then, they weren't, their people weren't as nervous about germs as they're nervous today. Or maybe uh, people walked on the sidewalks, and nobody's walking past your sidewalk. Everybody's driving. Or maybe there's uh, so many stores that are selling um, pop and other drinks that the market is saturated. Or maybe, uh, you know, the city has passed an ordinance. So you have to have your Kool-Aid tested. You get thrown in jail. I threw that one in for fun. But a lot of times, you know... <laughs> A government can ruin uh, a particular field that was a very bountiful field before. And I think that we can uh, allow our children to make mistakes. Many times we learn from our mistakes, but I think it's far more fruitful to tell our children, yeah, we will make mistakes, but let's try to anticipate what those might be, and let's look at the market that you're trying to invest in, and let's hammer out what are the potential downsides? Is this really a market we ought to be getting into? We've got to teach them young, uh, these principles. Okay, the... Uh, which one did we just cover? Number five. The sixth principle of farming that's mentioned. 
Am I skipping five? Okay, let's go to five then. Isaiah 28 and Christ's parable of the seed uh, illustrate another principle of sowing, and that is that we must only sow when the fields are ready. Okay? Now, that's different than the timing issue, the season issue. This is like a farmer uh, having to throw out all of the stones, maybe drain a field, making sure that it's plowed, it's fertilized, it's ready. And uh, it, it, in the same way, we've got to analyze. There may be a company that is an ideal investment, but it's going to be an ideal investment a year from now, not right now. It, your money's just going to stagnate. It's going to sit there and not do anything for the, the next year, simply because... Uh, it is not ready. Farmers had to ask the Lord uh, for wisdom, even in this, uh, this area. And, uh, boy, I was told a story, I won't go down that rabbit trail, of uh, way out in the east where an uh, old farmer failed completely because the land was not ready, and he didn't know how to make the land ready. But uh, I won't belabor that one. Sixth principle of farming that's mentioned in Isaiah 28, is we must not put all of our hope in one crop. Farmers in the Old Testament typically diversified so that if one crop failed because of climate, locusts, you know, who, who knows what uh, made it fail, at least there was a potential that you wouldn't totally fail because you were diversified in different crops that came up at uh, different times. Well, Ecclesiastes 11, verse 2, says much the same thing. Here's how it's worded by Moffat. Take shares in several ventures. You never know what will go wrong in this world. Okay, he's saying we don't know the future. We've got to, uh, we've got to anticipate by diversifying to minimize the risk. Here's another translation. New English Bible renders it. Divide your merchandise among seven ventures, eight maybe, since you do not know what disasters may occur on earth. Now, you've probably heard it as the expression, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And the meaning is very obvious. If the basket drops, all the eggs are destroyed. And yet Christians violate this in the area of economics over and over again. I've got relatives. You can't talk out of doing this, you know, where all of your investments are going to be going into mutual funds because, you know, this is something that's uh, worked for others and you're following the, the system or the pattern for tracking or all of it goes into gold or all of it goes into the bank. And God says, no, diversify. If you're going to prosper, you need to diversify into, into uh, different uh, areas. And by the way, the same principle applies to evangelism. Uh, Christ used various techniques, you know, diversification. Seventh principle is plant something. <laughs> That's fairly obvious. <coughs> Psalm 1 talks about the, the <coughs> Lord prospering. <laughs> the work of the righteous. <clears throat> and um, he talks about some of the conditions that need to be met. We're going to be looking at some of those as fertilizer that we're putting on our fields, as it were. But he does not say that this righteous person is going to be prospered irrespective of what he does. It does not say he prospers in everything he fails to do. Instead, it says whatever he does prospers. Okay, farmers don't reap if they don't work and if they don't plant. Uh, God's not going to prosper the things that we fail to set our hands to. Uh, we're not going to have a successful business if we're not willing to take the risk and the hard work of starting a new business. We're not going to be able to cut that mortgage down to half its years if we're not systematically paying those. It doesn't matter how much you pray. You can say, oh, Lord, please bring this mortgage down, you know, two-thirds. If you're not planting, you're, God's not going to prosper. 
And um, uh, we, we cannot uh, evangelize others if we're not being will, willing to be involved in their lives. So don't be passive. Maybe you're praying for God to prosper your retirement. Uh, scripture would ask this. Well, have you set anything aside into your retirement? And you might respond, well, you know, it's really no use because the number of years I've got left until I retire, there's no way I'm going to have enough. But the scripture would say, look, I can increase hundredfold, thousandfold, ten thousandfold what you put in there, but I've never promised to plant and to water. I have promised that when you invest into your savings, into your retirement, when you are willing to do that, I will then honor your faith and I will uh, cause it to prosper. <clears throat> so start planting something for God to prosper and do it in other areas. Start planting in evangelism. You know, start. many times people are unwilling to take risks in different ventures. And um, the eighth principle, monitor. Um, monitor the investment. We can't plant and then go our way. If a heavy rain came, you know, a field would have to be drained. If drought came, it might have to be irrigated. And God calls us to watch and to monitor. The same is true of evangelism. The same is true of the education of our children. Ninth principle, we must not plant or eat the first fruits. Now, that's different than eating your savings. Okay, this is the tithe. These are the offerings that we give to the Lord. And God says, don't you shortchange me. You're going to shortchange your whole program. You rob me, you're going to rob your prosperity. Now, you might prosper for a period of time in your own flesh, but you're guaranteed to be sowing to the flesh monetarily if you're robbing from God because God says, that's not the way my field works. And uh, he promises in Malachi in many different uh, places, he will pour out his blessing, but he also promises that when we fail to honor him in this way, uh, he, he will not honor us. I, I think it's Hosea. It just came to my mind. But the people are complaining. They said, well, we'll, we'll tithe. We know we're not able to tithe because uh, the Lord's not prospering us. And the prophet reversed that. He says, the reason you guys are not being prospered is because you haven't been tithing. You've got it completely backwards. Here's what uh, God says in Proverbs 23, 5. For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. You won't be able to take it with you. See, God can make any of the fleshly prosperity that we might get financially, he can make that disappear just like that. We've got to be stewards. We've got to be dependent upon him. And then the last principle that Scripture teaches us about sowing properly is that farmers have to trust God when they put that seed into the ground, when they cast it on the waters. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we, uh, we might be thinking, if I don't make a good harvest this year, I need to eat this. You know, we may starve if I put this into the ground, but we've got to trust God. We've got to invest. Tithing may seem like, Lord, if I tithe, if I invest into your kingdom this way, I'll never make it. And God says, trust me, you've got to be a farmer who's willing to take risks for the, the sake of my kingdom. In fact, uh, nothing risked, nothing gained. We, you know, if if a church planter does not take risks that, yes, could make a church go, uh, go belly up on occasion, uh, he's not going to go. He's not going to advance. Churches that are unwilling to take any risks, all they have is the status quo. You know, they exist. They don't prosper. They don't go forward. And we cannot allow the, the danger of risk to keep us from investing in God's kingdom. It's my prayer that Paul's prayer would be answered in our lives 
when he says, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Amen. Father God, I thank you for these principles that uh, should be so obvious for us to follow, and yet many times in the spiritual as well as in the financial realm, uh, we, we, we fail to do that. We're like a person who sees the, the incredible crops that our neighbor is bringing in, and we think, wow, I, I, I want to have those, and we start planting when they're harvesting. Lord, I pray that you would help us to avoid the foolishness of, uh, uh, of doing those kinds of things and help us, Lord, to prosper as we by faith seek to implement the steps that you have given to us. Prosper the work of our hands and enable us to be uh, entering into greater stewardship trusts to advance your kingdom and your cause here in Omaha and abroad. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.